I hate failing publicly, but I had to just accept that that's part of the process of making video. And the good thing about YouTube is, despite the fact that billions of people use it, YouTube won't show your video to them unless it's any good. Hello, welcome to Shopify Masters, your companion for starting and building a business. I'm Shwang Esther Shan. James Hoffman has done just about everything related to coffee. He's won the World Barista Championships in 2007. He opened a roastery in London. He helped design espresso machines. And through it all, he chronicled his life's work, first in a blog, later in a book. These days, you might recognize him from his videos on YouTube or TikTok. James is joining us today to talk about starting a business around your passion and how content creation has remained a constant throughout his career. Thanks for being here, James. Thank you for having me. Super excited to chat with you. I've learned so much from your channel. I wanted to ask you about your relationship with coffee. It's sometimes a transient career where people become a barista for a few years and move on to something else, but you've definitely dedicated your life and career to this industry. So how did you first interact with coffee? It's a good question. No one means to have a career in coffee, and that's probably still true today, but it was very true 20 years ago when I started. And uh, I got into it like most people do, which is just the need of a job that ideally paid frequently and paid okay. And, and that was it. I, I started working in coffee before I started drinking coffee, which is kind of weird. But I was demonstrating the little espresso machines in like a nice department store in London, and I had no idea what I was doing but I figured I should learn something. And the more I kind of read and kind of discovered about coffee, the more interested I got. And it became a, I guess, a full-blown obsession in that, you know, pretty quickly. And that obsession has actually turned into a few businesses before you came onto YouTube. Tell us about a few of the businesses you started. Well, I suppose the biggest one was back in 2008, uh, which was Square Mile Coffee Roasters, which was a coffee roasting company. When you go through the kind of coffee competition scene, which is a weird thing that definitely exists, but is weird, uh, you kind of come out the other side, not really sure what to do with your life. And most people sort of think you should just start your own business. And I did that without truly understanding the implications of starting your own business. It just seemed like the next step in a career in a weird sort of way. So that was 2008. In terms of other businesses, after that, we started uh, working with a Japanese manufacturer on an importing business uh, to distribute their products, a company called Hario that makes very nice kind of pour-over stuff and other things. We sold that business a few years ago. We acquired a cafe at one point, which we still have, uh, called Proof Rock Coffee. So we kind of have our toes in physical bricks and mortar retail as well. And aside from that, just other bits and pieces. I, I started a magazine for a while, and that was one thing. I ran a, a, a jobs board dedicated to coffee jobs uh, for a good long while. So there's been a few different things over the years, uh, and there's probably some I'm forgetting, but yeah, it's been fun so far. It's crazy cool to hear so many different touch points relating to coffee. So you co-founded Square Mile Roastery back in 2008, and you were actually one of the early adopters of Shopify. How did you find out about us, and why was selling online so important for you? It's a good question. It's look, it's a long time ago, so like some of the details might be a little bit fuzzy, but we were kind of weird in our setup. We we had started a business in London, but myself and my business partner felt probably more connected to a global coffee community that was happening because London didn't really have a coffee scene yet. And so uh, we felt there was more interest, especially after the kind of competition stuff from outside of our immediate neighborhood than there was within the neighborhood. 
which meant online was inevitable to some extent. So early on, I think we just wanted to be able to connect and sell to people. As for Shopify, I suspect more than anything else, it was word of mouth. And it would have probably been someone in North America who was ahead of me in the game. Uh, and I would have chatted to those people and be like, what are you using? And everyone was, you know, just dipping their toes and stuff. But yeah, I remember August 2008, turning on the online store and being astonished that orders kind of came in almost straight away. And that was the beginning of what's become a much bigger, more complex business. Still, obviously built on Shopify. But yeah, it's it's been kind of fun to see it scale with us and, and see all the changes and the evolution it's gone through. It was a simpler system back then, but it worked so well for what we were doing. And you also have a merch business that associates with your channel, which you also run on Shopify, which is tens, hundreds, thousands. Tell us about some of the apps or services that have really helped that business. I understand, uh, for one, it's print on demand, which integrates nicely into your Shopify store. We started tens, hundreds of thousands, well, maybe five years ago, maybe not quite that. And it was a kind of fascinating moment for me. I'd come up with a product idea for kind of YouTube-related stuff, and it was a set of dice that would help you make a recipe for coffee brewing. And it was like I'd forgotten every lesson I'd learned with Square Mile, and I was there, sat at a desk, stuffing a thousand envelopes by hand, uh, and I was like, this is miserable work. What am I doing? This doesn't have to be this way. I know it doesn't have to be this way. From that point onwards, we're like, we should be smart about this and integrate third-party warehousing into this. We integrate uh, sort of print-on-demand. Outside of the development phase of a product, we don't need to be the ones touching it. We don't need to be the ones putting it in boxes and doing all that kind of stuff because other people can do that at scale far better than we can. And so, yeah, after that first terrible experience, which is entirely my fault, we very quickly transitioned to integrating with third-party warehousing. And that's changed over the years. We've used a few different ones and in different, as, as we've expanded to have an LLC in the US versus the kind of UK business here and a, a European registration as well. We, different partners fulfilled different needs for us, which has been important. And I think the flexibility of having a core that I know really well inside and out and I'm very familiar with, but being able to bolt in any aspect of it, both, you know, to improve the store itself or more analytics, but ultimately for us, the, the big piece is really easy, simple you know, warehouse integration. That's been game-changing and is utterly essential. I could never go back to shipping thousands and thousands of products by hand. That would, no, no interest in that. <laughs> Sounds like relying on expertise or third-party integrations, whether it's apps or services, has helped your business in different ways. Through all the different businesses you've started, what are some of the other similar lessons you've learned that, hey, this is like kind of a reincurring theme and that you take to the next business? There's a couple, I suppose, that I would think about. The first one, as you start to grow a team, this is going to sound bad at the start, everybody leaves. At some point, everybody leaves. And a brilliant business with real sustainability and longevity can survive despite every single member leaving. It might be that they move on to a new you know, role in their career. It might be that they retire. A business owner may die at the end of it and they leave. You know what I mean? Like everyone will leave a business. And if you think about that, then it's about, okay, well, how does the business itself retain knowledge and information and structure sort of separate from the people that work within it. You know, this kind of liberation there. In an extreme example, coffee shops get this totally wrong a lot of the time. A new coffee shop will open and they'll hire someone who's really great at making coffee. And that person will help them 
you know, get going, launch, set up the kind of coffee menu, do all that stuff, do some training. But when that person leaves, all the knowledge goes with them. And, and what I worked out pretty early is you need to be capturing uh, the information, the knowledge that the team members have and building systems around it so that new people can come in and have a great time doing it. You know what I mean? Like uh, not suddenly be working below the best or feeling like they're, they're not producing the quality that they should or doing the job right. It's about helping people do the best work they can. And I feel like that's been a, a big piece of that. So like systems and structure are still shockingly underrated, I think, amongst uh, a lot of people who start businesses, especially passionate people. I think that's the most common place that it kind of goes sideways where they have the passion and they have the knowledge and they don't work out how to feed that into the business. I think the other thing has always been just investing in what's necessary to scale. Like every time that we've bought, say, equipment for the sort of production line at Square Mile, I've often felt like we should have done that six months ago. Do you know what I mean? Like you'll often hold back and without really realizing it, either hold back your growth or just you'll have a miserable time. And that investment, it's hard to do it upfront because you just feel like the business is growing. I don't want to rip the, the kind of cash out of it. But investing in that stuff has been really, really effective. And every time I've done it, I, I wish we'd done it earlier. Speaking of change for yourself, you also found an interest in 2010 to actually share some of the coffee knowledge initially with your blog. And then you decided to experiment and write more pieces for the community, which led to the video aspect. But initially, when you started writing, were you targeting specifically for this niche coffee community or were you wanting to kind of share that knowledge with the masses? I suppose my original writing goes back quite a long way further. It's like 2004 was when I got my first coffee-related blog going. And at that point, I felt extremely isolated in terms of I was a person. I didn't know anyone else who really cared about coffee at that point, except people on the internet. And so what I thought I would do is, is have a little blog that chart sort of was a, a diary of things I was learning that might be useful to other people. And I think... A lot of people talk about the best way to understand something is to be able to explain it back to somebody else. And so, you know, my process of writing initially has always been about, do I understand this thing that I want to share? And one of the best ways to learn that you're wrong is to post something on the internet because people will rapidly come in and correct you. So if you're genuinely interested in, in sort of learning and sharing good information, this was a really virtuous cycle where I would learn about something, share it, I'd maybe get some corrections or ideas or new things, and it would kind of continue and continue. And it allowed me to be a part of a kind of global community of like-minded people. And that really kind of accelerated my learning as well as built connections. And, you know, some of those people might have been early customers of my businesses or in some cases, wholesale customers of, of the business. But, it, you know, not everything was transactional. It was mostly about, I want to, sh to learn and share. I'll learn to write to do that. And yeah, eventually people stopped reading blogs the way that they, you know, used to. And the transition to video was the next step. I'm speaking with James Hoffman, co-founder of Square Mile Roasters. We're chatting all about building a business around your passion. I hope Shopify Masters is able to help you turn your passion into a business. If you haven't already, follow or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think of the episode with a review. Thanks. So you started with blogging and writing and then added on video making. At the time, I don't think you were the typical YouTuber. So how did you adapt to this new platform to find your voice and style over time? 
I think my very early days were actually my very first video, some which have gone now, thankfully, were kind of vloggy ones where I think, like everyone else, I was just ripping off Casey Neistat. For me to just get the habit of like building an edit, get back into like shooting and editing video again. And I, I learned two interesting lessons at that time, which is one, whatever audience I had had outside of YouTube, be it Instagram or Twitter at that time, or whatever it was, had no interest in coming across the YouTube. I, I thought I would grow my subscriber count pretty quickly uh, because I had 10, 20,000 followers on Instagram that they would come and watch my YouTube videos. And they didn't, they really didn't. And, and that was a great lesson on like, you have to build a community locally within that kind of place. I think that that was very true then. It's still, I would say mostly true now. And secondly, I hate failing publicly, but I had to just accept that that's part of the process of making video. And the good thing about YouTube is, despite the fact that billions of people use it, YouTube won't show your video to them unless it's any good. And so you can get into the habit of making and publishing and building a small audience and kind of going through that process of learning and developing what you want to do early doors without really that many people seeing it. And I think for me, it took me a while to work out who I really wanted to talk too. That definitely informed the kind of videos I made and, and how I wanted to reach people. And I kind of formed a sort of a, a slow strategy around this stuff that I think allowed me to find the people I was trying to reach. And my purpose on YouTube is to some extent education and entertainment, but ultimately I want people to enjoy coffee more. That's the purpose of what I do. I want you as a coffee drinker to enjoy it more. And that can mean a whole bunch of different stuff. But if that's my purpose, then it, it, it was kind of I don't think I worried too much about the rest of the stuff as long as I was sort of working towards that idea. There's a lot of iterating and finding your voice, your style. Looking back, what were some of the things you did to kind of help you through that process? I think I was fortunate to have had a job previously that was a, a lot of sort of public speaking and presenting. And so that part of it was an easier part of it for me. The lessons I learned pretty quickly is that passionate people in the nicest possible way, are a little bit funny because they've, they're so passionate that it, it's a little bit, you know, ridiculous, but in a good way. And I think I accepted fairly early on that I'm a little bit ridiculous and I can sort of acknowledge it and allow you, the viewer, to acknowledge it and then I can get on with the more complex stuff that I want to do. So I feel like, for me, a big part of developing my tone or style was was kind of learning how to be in on the joke of my own absurdity as a deeply obsessed coffee person. That took quite a long while. The rest of it is still, outside of that, I think very much a work in progress. I think we're still learning about how much hardcore information people want versus just entertainment, just have fun and watch a video and maybe learn something, but it not be like a lecture for 15 minutes. The sort of structures of videos we're looking to play with and evolve over time rather than, you know, some stuff is to camera at desks like this, other stuff is weird and expansive and odd. I feel like the core stuff of like, have good information, listen to your community, and also for me, accept your absurdity was the kind of base recipe. And once that was in place, the channel really started to grow and connect with a much, much bigger audience. I can definitely relate to that because I think we're also trying to understand how to balance educational versus entertaining content for Shopify as well. I wanted to ask about also finding your groove in this whole new world of short form video and what is your approach to short form content? I'm not sure if I'm going to get myself into trouble here. <laughs> I don't make much for short form content because for me, I think it's really hard to do meaningful educational work and meaningful 
relationship building through short form. I think that's much, much harder than long form. Long form has a whole bunch of other challenges and, and it can be very slow and complex and annoying to make. But for what I'm trying to achieve, which is to build a relationship with an audience to the point that they trust me and I can take them on a journey to, to where coffee is better, that's really hard to do in short form. I can do entertainment as short form, but I feel like it's just, it's more like 80% entertainment, 20% education. And I'd, I'm aiming for more of a 50-50. And so it, the feeling I have after watching a bunch of long form videos is often kind of nourished by that. And short form, I just feel like I've kind of been chewing mental gum. You know what I mean? I don't feel like I've had that same nutrition from it. And that's just me. And, you know, that's not to say there aren't brilliant educators on short form stuff. I'm just not good at doing that. And I think I just accepted that pretty early on. I'll keep experimenting. But, you know, for me, for relationship building, long form is is much more powerful. Which I guess begs the question of, is your favorite content that you've created similar to the content that has performed the best? And do you find that they're often the same videos or are there the different videos? It's a good question. The truth is I kind of hate everything I make and I need to do better at not feeling that way because it sort of steals a bit of the joy. I think some of the stuff that's done really well, I've been really pleased that it has somehow found an audience because we talk about niche uh, as a word a lot in this and, and coffee's a weird niche because the idea that I could, you know, be a coffee-related content creator, I really like the words, but or, or a coffee, you know, focused person seems so niche, but it's something that everyone drinks. A lot of people drink. Most people drink. It's, you know, one of the most popular forms of psychoactive stimulation that we as a, as a human species take is caffeine. And so, yeah, it's been surprising when I've done a, a kind of nerdier video and it's found an audience of millions of people. But at the same time, I see a lot of science creators reaching huge audiences with really complex, heavy stuff. So, yeah, that, that stuff's very satisfying. They've been weirder projects that we've put a lot more money and time into the production, and that hasn't always landed. But I think for me, it was a worthwhile investment in the process of learning to be a better filmmaker, which is weirdly something I am interested in outside of just being a better coffee video maker. I'm sometimes surprised and sometimes pleasantly surprised. But yeah, I don't play favorites too much. I just, I like to evolve what I make and improve. I think that's just part of the process of hating everything is that I want it to be better next time and better next time. Is that kind of weird? I don't know. That's that's just me. No, I think anyone who has made anything creative can relate to that. The first step of trying to be creative is kind of hating the stuff you make. So I think that's <laughs> totally relatable. Did you also find there was kind of a weird COVID correlation with the growth of your channel and also your content? Because I think a lot of people might have found you during COVID when they had to set up their at-home brewing stations. And then now that things are back to normal, how are you adjusting to people's content consumption patterns and making content that still fit into their coffee rituals? So definitely the channel going into COVID was maybe between one and 200,000 subscribers. I don't know how long we count COVID as lasting, but in that time, it passed through a million and, and obviously it grew quite a lot. And yes, I think a lot of people suddenly coffee, a part of their lives had been taken away, uh, going to a great coffee shop and they wanted the great coffee, but they knew that there's a bit of process behind it. And so I think I found a lot of people that way. I think what's interesting to me is that I didn't make a ton I made some, but not like a ton of how to brew coffee at home content at that time. I think I made enough to kind of satiate those people. And alongside technique stuff, I do review stuff. And I think that definitely had an eye to 
entry-level stuff and people who want to get started making coffee at home, trying to help them out for sure. But then just other stuff, people seem to be sort of happy to come along for the ride and start to explore sort of more of coffee in that way. And so now post the sort of world coming back, I think there's still a lot of people who want to know how to get the best out of what they've got. So I think that's still a big piece. But at the same time, I think they're kind of more and more people are open to, well, tell me something else interesting about coffee. Like what else have you got? And so, you know, because of COVID, we've really barely done any travel and a massive and fascinating part of coffee happens in the countries that it is produced. I've done none of that. So an enormous part of my whole industry, I just haven't touched yet, which is kind of exciting. But even then, there's still a lot more to explore outside of those areas. So yeah, I I feel fortunate to be one of those people who doesn't really worry about running out of ideas. We have hundreds of them. It's a bit of a problem. But yeah, I think now... We're just kind of interested in seeing, well, what else do people want to know? Where else are they open to being taken within the realm and niche of coffee? I was going to say, I loved your recent video going to Italy to try to find the best tiramisu. So that in itself relates to coffee, but you're also taking the viewer to somewhere new. So you going to a coffee farmer or like somewhere in Central America or Africa, that would be super fascinating. So it would be fun to do. And I think just to jump in there real quick that's kind of one of the fun things about coffee is that like italy is famous for coffee but you know just about every european country has distinct coffee cultures and weirdnesses that you could talk about and that's not just europe that's kind of the whole world like coffee is everywhere but it's different everywhere and it's fun in different ways everywhere so uh, i definitely want to get into more of the global coffee stuff in the not too distant future I kind of have to ask this question. I'm sure you get asked this a lot. So after all these years creating content in so many different ways, what is your advice now for people wanting to get into content creation? I mean, firstly, you have to have something to say. And I think spending time to develop expertise is really important. Uh, You know, I'd spent quite a long time trying to educate myself and, and learn a great deal about coffee and also to practice sharing coffee before I started making content. And that definitely made that bit easier. I think a lot of people see being a creator as as a kind of great career path. But I, I think unless you have a voice and something to share, then it's just going to be immensely frustrating because you're just not going to find an audience because th- there's no point with which they'll connect with you or resonate with you or learn from you. So uh, as a number one, it's like find a passion outside of this and go deep on it as deep as you can. Because one, if it's a passion, you'll have a great time doing that, even if you never make a video about it ever. And two, if you do want to start making videos, those will be useful to a much wider audience of people. I I suppose the the second piece is just like, it's okay to be terrible at the start because no one's going to see it. That's kind of it. From from my point of view, they were definitely terrible at the start, and that's okay. You know, I think of people are always so reluctant to share anything, and it's always worth remembering, most people will never see this, and by the time you grow an audience, you can always take it away. You can always just disappear at that point. You don't need to worry about this stuff. But that would be, the first one for me is really it. Like, the, the people I see frustrated most often haven't really worked out what they're trying to say and can't really summarize that neatly to communicate that to a wider audience. And so I I think it's finding your passion first and foremost is, is the key. In relation to having your channel and also your businesses, I feel like you've purposely kept them kind of separate, unlike traditional YouTubers who might be promoting their merch or their products directly in their channel. It actually takes a bit of digging and researching to read all about the different businesses you've had. So yeah, tell us about the decision-making process you've had to make sure to go with this approach of managing your YouTube and separating it from the businesses that you do have. I feel like 
in principle, there's a fundamental difference between a personal channel and a brand channel. And there are plenty of brand channels I watch and enjoy, but a personal channel sort of makes a promise that you're interacting with me, an individual. And from my point of view, again, back to what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to get you excited and interested in coffee. The purpose of a brand channel would be to sell you product or to build a long-lasting relationship, right? If you muddy the two, right, if I'm looking like I'm here to build a relationship with you that's just about education and that kind of stuff, but actually quietly trying to just sell you product, I don't think that's being honest, and I don't think that helps you build a real meaningful, lasting relationship with your audience that way. And so for me, that's not the nature of this. I'm not showing you this stuff so you'll buy the coffee. That's not the point. I'm showing you this stuff because I want you to love coffee more. And if you're really interested, you you might go and look and see what I do. And some people do, and they go and find the other businesses and, and they, you know, that that happens, but that's not the purpose of the content. That's not the purpose of the videos. That's not the purpose of the whole channel and that kind of stuff. And so for me, I think it's important to keep them separate. I think I want a relationship that is more direct and and has more trust in it than you would ever really normally have with a kind of brand's social media presence. Yeah. And I think the way that you've integrated the different brands or even collaborations have been really smart. So we mentioned Proofrock Cafe in the beginning. So you actually had a pop-up where you put in vintage espresso machines there and had different people experience that. But the way that it was carried out, it wasn't like, this is the cafe to be, or you're trying to funnel people into the cafe. So yeah, tell us more about that pop-up experience. Well, I think I'd gone hunting around Italy for a very old machine and I'd found someone who sort of restores them back to kind of pristine brand new and a a machine from the 1950s and I bought it and from my point of view the honest part of it was like it's such a shame if I have that in my studio and I drink coffee from it and no one else does and so I was like what would be fun is if we can put this somewhere where people can come and experience it and see it and touch it and have the coffee from it and have an opinion. And so we set it up that we would have like a this machine kind of going head to head with a high tech modern machine because I just thought that would be fun to taste. And, you know, we roasted coffee specifically for the old machine and did a bunch of stuff. But at the same time, I have a global audience and I wasn't really sure what, you know, one coffee shop in central London would benefit from just like, here's a weird tasting that we're doing. We definitely underestimated people's interest. We had people traveling from all over the UK, in some cases from Europe, just they just wanted to come by and be a part of that, which was amazing. I think because it came from a place of, I want you to taste this because it would be really fun and it would be a nice memory and you would have a nice time. That's different to go to my cafe, buy my coffee, spend more money with me. Like that's that's a different motivation. And I think audiences are smart and can tell if you're being honest and upfront or if you're not. And so, yeah, in situations where it's been natural to say, we're doing this thing and look, you should know that's us or it's square mile or whatever it's going to be. I, I think transparency has been really, really important for me and what I do. It's kind of different and it works really well. And I think everyone's okay with it. And it ties back to your core of being genuinely curious about coffee in different ways. And I would love to also ask about the project that you had designing an espresso maker and why that collaboration also really made sense for you. Yeah, earlier in my career where I think I had spent a long time developing just a broad expertise and I was traveling quite a lot and, and part of a lot of communities. And I built a relationship with a, uh, an espresso machine manufacturer in Italy and I helped them on a couple of projects design and kind of 
create some commercial espresso machines. So not really stuff designed to go into the homes, even though some have ended up in people's homes. That's a, a kind of fascinating process where I'm not an industrial designer and I'm not saying that I was there sketching out like layouts of pipes and tubes and elements and things like that. But from my point of view, my job is to help set the brief. I think what I've historically been good at in my career is kind of taking in quite a lot of information and, and try to get to the heart of it, uh, kind of condensing stuff down and, and sort of looking for, it, be it trends or the way things are going in the future. That was my work there to kind of help them build a machine for where the market was going. That kind of classic, you know, skate to where the puck is going, not to where it is right now kind of thing. Obviously, that was a very business to business relationship, even though they do some business to kind of consumer stuff. But that was very successful for, for both of us. And so that was a very satisfying arrangement to have had as a kind of consultant for, I guess, maybe seven or eight years across a, a few different projects. But yeah, now I sort of stepped away from all of that kind of stuff and, and just focusing on doing a little bit less in a weird sort of way. Obviously, the channel YouTube is your main focus, but you're also having a full circle moment with writing different books relating to coffee. In this kind of current day and age of content consumption, why was writing a book still very important to you? It's a good question. And I think about this quite a lot because if I'm truly honest, I don't like writing books. It's really hard. And that's not me being glib. It, it is, I, I think the, the first book that I wrote, I truly understood that to be an author is a job and it's full-time work and that is to be respected. My first book was called The World Atlas of Coffee. That came out back in 2014. So I would have started working on it over 10 years ago now. And I think at that point, my literary agents were very much like, you won't, you won't sell any copies. You'll have a great business card. And I sort of felt differently because I felt like the for what I wanted, no one had written the book I wanted to read, uh, which is kind of a strange thing. But I, as a coffee professional, really wanted all of this information in one neat place. And I thought, if I write that, at least I'll be happy. That book ended up being surprisingly successful and continues to sell really well to this day. It's sort of sold hundreds of thousands of copies, which is very strange for a small coffee textbook. And then I suppose writing another book, I'd enjoyed enough about that process of people getting the book, enjoying the book you know, sharing photos of how it had been a nice part of their day, that there was a real satisfaction in that. There's a kind of greater permanence to books in a funny sort of way. They take a lot longer to make, but, you know, you spend a lot of time making a YouTube video and you publish it and it goes really well, and then you just have to do it again. And it's just, oh, you know, that what you did doesn't count for much and it doesn't have the same long tail despite, you know, maybe designing your videos for long tails, but it doesn't have the feeling of a long tail. Whereas a book... You know, 10 years later, people still tag me on Instagram with a picture of them with the book open on a page about Kenya with a cup of Kenyan coffee and talking about how they're enjoying the whole experience. So that's very motivating. It's very satisfying. And so the second book was more about how to make coffee rather than where coffee comes from. Again, publishers are sort of not convinced. It was great that I managed to sneak it onto a bestseller list. Like, it, it, I think there's the appetite for those kind of things out there that makes them satisfying, rewarding sort of projects in that way. And takes you out of the treadmill of YouTube for a bit to switch gears and go back to the craft that started it all. Yeah, I'd love to say that I just took three months off YouTube to write, but that, <laughs> this is not the case. Uh, I should take three months off YouTube to write the next book if I do another book. But yeah, it's a balancing act, I think. A, a lot of people now have these weird portfolio careers where you don't have a job anymore, you have a bunch, and, and, and juggling them has definitely been one of the challenging aspects of sort of modern life for me. 
I would love to end the show by asking you what kind of trends or changes within the industry that you're looking forward to, especially because we turn to you for so much about coffee knowledge. Oh, that's that's difficult. That's still difficult. It's the more I learn and the more immersed I get in YouTube, which is a truly global audience, you realize that whatever I know about what's going on in London or in bits of the US coffee is truly global. So I don't really know a bunch of exciting stuff that's bubbling up. And I think one of the things we'll see as language barriers begin to break down, I think, you know, this is a sort of strange one, but as um, things like AI dubbing really uh, explode and become easy and useful, uh, I suddenly feel like different parts of the world are going to begin to connect in a whole other way. There's amazing coffee scenes in places like Korea or China or Japan that I, I don't really know about because I can't engage with what they're doing the same way. And I think that's going to change. And so kind of global cross-pollination of coffee culture is going to happen, especially on the internet, I think, as one. I think a, a difficult part of coffee's future is that the good stuff is going to get more expensive, for sure. And the, the cheap stuff is going to stay cheap for a while. And so uh, I think we're, uh, you know, a lot of coffee's next 10 or 15 years is navigating that and trying to understand what does it mean? Are we going to try and convince people to spend twice what they do for just the same amount of coffee that they're drinking right now? Or are we accepting that some people may just drink less great coffee in the future? That's a big, giant, scary part of my industry that I will spend a lot of my time thinking about, though I'm not sure how much time I'm going to spend making videos about it. But ultimately, I think more and more people are kind of getting excited by the idea that coffee, this simple thing that they took for granted, you know, as part of their day, can be this moment of delight and enjoyment and surprise and interest and can be rewarding in a way that they never knew it would. I think the in the short term, you know, we're just going to reach more and more and more people with that idea. And that makes me very happy and very positive. Well, I look forward to perhaps a video of you cafe hopping in Asia or visiting farmers at Source. So very exciting stuff. Thank you. Yeah, I hope so too. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here, James. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Shopify Masters. Megan Coyle and Gogo Zoger are producers of our show. Our engineers are Matt Schwartz and Miku Betlam. Benjamin Gottlieb is our supervising producer. And I'm Schwang Esther Shan. And you'll hear from us next time on Shopify Masters.